0: Oh Lord God, it's our privilege and joy to be here to worship you this morning, to worship in song, to listen to songs, and to apprehend your glory from your scriptures. As we've been reading, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the privilege to become children of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's our delight to know you, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that you've come to our rescue, a rescue from sin, from sin, darkness, from despair, and you've granted us forgiveness and freedom and light and hope. We pray that you would grow our Christmas joy in our hearts, that we would understand more of who you are in all of your glory and our redemption by what you have accomplished for us. We pray also that you would show us, Holy Spirit, the glory of Jesus, the only Son of the Father, this morning as we look in the Gospel of John. Amen. But well, before we begin looking at the gospel of John this morning, I just want to uh, formally give a public update on my cancer journey. And so many of you know that uh, I had liver surgery a few weeks ago, and we finally got the pathology report and able to meet with our oncologist, and I'm uh, very excited to report that it was successful, and the cancer is gone. So... so but there's still part of the journey ahead, as many of you probably know. There's still things that need to be done and maintenance and recovery and all those types of things. But we're praising the Lord for that wonderful report and answer to all of our prayers together. And uh, as I've been thinking through this um, last year, excuse me, um, it's been um, God's grace and his mercy and his love to all of us individually. And I think as a congregation, it's just been amazing to see. You know, sometimes during the process, you sort of wonder, you know, am I going to be here next Christmas? We'll see. But here I am. So, I guess I have to do one more. <laughs> but it's a lot of work. But thanks to my wife for being a great caregiver. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> so. so let's, uh, let's look at John's Gospel this morning. We're continuing our Advent series, we're actually finishing up the prologue today. But, you know, when we think about the incarnation, and, uh, you know, that's a big word, but it just simply means, means becoming flesh. You know, God became flesh. So the incarnation of the Word, God, the Son, Jesus Christ, has so many dimensions to it. And in our passage this morning, there are actually five of them. Don't try to write them down, but we'll, we'll come to them as we go. But as you think about the incarnation, there are so many aspects that we could just focus on and meditate. So, for example, just the historic event itself. I mean, that the eternal son in time, in particular place and time and, and mother, and, and here he is, this glorious centerpiece of the progression of the history of redemption. So the historical event itself is just a glorious thing to think about. Also, the person of Christ. I mean, this, of course, we will never, ever figure this one out in the glory and the mystery of Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man that's a, a mystery in and of itself and of course now we have a fuller understanding of, after he came and what it means to then be close to him also third we see this movement in the bible of bringing grace and truth to the world more and more openly only well, incarnation finally came so much of that mystery was revealed and here it is the Savior of the world. And then you think about the ministry of Jesus Christ himself when he was physically present on this earth and all the the glories that took place there that we can read about in the gospel accounts. And they culminate, of course, in his work on the cross and in his resurrection for us. That's still part of the glory of the incarnation. It's why he came. And our present situation that we live in I mean, we live in one of the most privileged times in the history of redemption where we know all these things. And our future hope is very different um, because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So these are just a few of the ways. These are all brought up in our passage, by the way, today that we're looking at in John chapter 1, verse 14 to 18. And, of course, there are many other things to explore, but there's enough here to explore for today about the incarnation of Jesus. So let me read this passage to you. he has made him known. So our Apostle John is, is now making this startling bold claim that the word that he introduced back in verse 1 is actually Jesus, the word incarnate, the eternal Son, the divine Messiah. Now, of course, we already know that, so it's not as exciting to say that now because we've already read so much of the passage. But as you read through the prologue, it's like, who is this word? Well, now he's finally identified in verse 14 as coming among us and what we learn today the point of this passage is that the word of God incarnate brings glory and surpassing grace and truth into our lives and we're gonna look at how that's done so in verses 14 and 15 there's just very simply the outline is that's the person of Jesus that we're talking about and then in verses 16 to 18 his ministry among us so first of all who is this Jesus in verses 14 and 15 and we read right away that Jesus Christ, this eternal word, is the Son of God in verse 14. And then in verse 15, we get this uh, back up, if you will, to John the baptizer's testimony. So again, verse 14 begins, the word became flesh. We probably all quote this, and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, It's, it's, the, it's like the statement of the introduction to the book of John. And so the identity, again, of the word is made clear in this final paragraph. He's God the Son, whom we know as Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. Now, that word became, in English, can be very misleading in some ways. It doesn't mean that somehow the word changed in his being, that he somehow gave up and lost some of his divinity in adding humanity. It doesn't mean that. The word becoming flesh also doesn't mean that he just appeared to be fleshly, but that somehow he wasn't really physical, as if he were some type of a phantom on walked the earth. Become also does not mean here that the word merely took on a body without full humanity. He took on full humanity body, and soul in personal union with his divinity. It means, more literally, that he was made or that he was born, that the word became flesh. Jesus Christ is one person, fully divine in nature, fully human in nature. And the term that's used here, <clears throat> flesh, you know, he could have used, John could have used another term, could have used, he became man. Could have used, he became um, He took on a body or something like that. But the word to choose, the word flesh, it powerfully communicates that he entered into the whole earthly experience of the human realm, body, and soul in this fallen world. It's a crude term, on purpose, so that we realize who we are and where we live and the kind of people that we really are. And so this crudeness of the term flesh is emphasizing all the more the desire of God to be with his people and to bring them salvation at this point in history. And the Apostle John here is likely opposing also some heretical teachings that were starting to develop not only in the philosophy of the age, but also entering into the church, Gnostic teachings, meaning special knowledge that you get. There's always Gnostics around people who think they have special knowledge better than everybody else. But at this time, uh, these uh, beginnings of this movement would recoil at the idea of a full incarnation. So in other words, that somehow you could mix spirit and flesh because spiritual things are good things, but physical things are bad things. And so this idea that they would come together is just ridiculous in their philosophy, and this type of thing started entering the church. It's a different gospel. It's not a real gospel because then Jesus isn't fully human. And so our Apostle John would later write in his second letter these words, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Rather, God's plan is clearly described by our, another Apostle, Apostle Paul in Romans 8, chapter 3, when he writes, For God has done what the law we can by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And of course the way that was done was by Jesus Christ offering himself up in our place on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead for our justification. Now we should realize that this event of the incarnation is really on par with the glory of the event of creation. And that's already been made known, I mean, the way John begins his gospel, in the beginning. It's like we're reading the book of Genesis again, right? In the beginning. And so this is a new beginning. And it's on par with that. And John 1, 3 says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's amazing that God could so closely dwell with his creation, especially fallen humanity. You know, it's not just a belief. It's not just a doctrinal statement or something that we check off, but it's a mystery of the incarnation that this could be our God who could take on our humanity. And perhaps the most interesting phrase in the, or word in this whole verse is the word dwell, which literally means to pitch one's tent in the original language here, or to take up residence. Uh, the term carries meanings like beginning to dwell and to stay with. That's what Jesus did. He became man, the God-man, and he's still the God-man in heavenly glory. And this is a clear reference, to use this word that he dwelt among us, to the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And that just simply means his visible open glory that God had go with his people. So, in other words, Jesus is better than that that he would dwell with us and with his people by his presence. And he fulfills all those promises of the Old Covenant. As one commentator wrote, we are reminded here both of the tabernacle in the wilderness and of the prophetic imagery of Yahweh tabernacling in the midst of his people and of the Shekinah which he causes to dwell among them. The place of his dwelling is the flesh of Jesus. All the ways of tabernacling of God in Israel have been transitory or incomplete. All are fulfilled and superseded by the word made flesh and dwelling among us. This is where we would meet God in Jesus Christ, who replaced the tabernacle, who replaced the temple. The one who inhabited the Holy of Holies has come to live and dwell among us. This is who Jesus is. God dwelling among man in a perfected way, far superior to the old covenant, in a fulfilled way, where he dwells among us. And Jesus' followers saw this unique glory of his as the Son of God. This means that they physically observed him, his teachings, they were there, his miracles, the special events that Jesus, uh, is recorded for Jesus, like his baptism, his transfiguration. And it also meant that they sensed it and spiritually saw Jesus for who he really was. He wasn't just some other man walking around the earth. This was the eternal Son of God. You see, the apostles and the disciples of the time are like Moses in a sense, that they met with God and they've come to tell us about him. And if you want to read their testimony, it's the New Testament. It's the gospel accounts that tell us about Jesus. The apostle John tells us about the glory he saw and the rest of this gospel that he wrote is going to be filled with that And we will see and sense for ourselves that this Jesus, we beheld his glory. So, have you seen his glory? I mean, how do you do that? The way you see Jesus' glory is you have to stare at Jesus. That's how you see his glory. You have to fix your eyes on him and just stare at him. And the way you're going to do that is by reading the New Testament, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as you stare at Jesus, you're going to observe him behaving certain ways and saying certain things. And it's going to change the way you think about him and what you actually see when you read. And then you adore him. That's what the Apostle John wants us to get out of this. It's a prominent theme in his gospel account. John reveals Jesus' glory, how he received glory from the Father, how he shows the Father's glory, how he came from the Father's glory, and he's going back to the Father's glory. Glory is definitely a theme of the Gospel of John. And so then we get to that, that his glory is that of the only unique, one-of-a-kind Son of the Father. Many different translations of the word monogonese here, but it simply means unique, one-of-a-kind. He's the son of the father, there is no other like him. This is the meaning of the term, it's not really begotten, that's not the meaning of this term about some kind of a generation or or procession or even mission, although that comes out in John's gospel later on and it gets developed. But here it even carries the idea of a beloved one and especially with family language. And it's the uniqueness of the son that is behind some of the claims that we read about in John's Gospel. For example, in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or later on in John 14.6, when Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is extremely important for us to understand because there's there's no one else. There's there's no other way to get to Jesus, I mean to get to God, to accept through Jesus and to understand who God really is. He's unique, and his incarnation is unique, and and it demands this type of understanding. And then the phrase, full of grace and truth, it parallels a common Hebrew phrase in the Old Testament, God's loving kindness and his truth, or loving kindness and faithfulness sometimes. That is a parallel, purposeful, full of grace and truth. They're not meant to be separate ideas, they express one idea combined, and truth here is not talking about factual truth, it's talking about relational truth, it's talking about faithfulness, being true to the character of your being. And so the meaning bundled together in reference to God's character is that he's faithful to his covenant promises. Simply put, the incarnation of the son of god is the full expression of god's faithfulness. How faithful is god? So faithful that he became man to redeem us from our sins. That's how faithful he is. Fully faithful. The glory of the incarnation is that it shows us that god has finally brought salvation in its fullness to deal with sin and to eradicate it, to bring grace and then we get to John the baptizer's testimony here. It's probably in parentheses in your translation in verse 15 because it seems so parenthetical. Then all of a sudden, well, John bore witness. This is John the baptizer. He bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And so we go back to John. Again, these are different Johns, right? John who wrote the gospel is different from John the baptizer that we're talking about here, but if if you go back, he was brought up earlier, right? There was a man sent from God in verse six, whose name was John, but he's not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. And John is brought back in here because he's the first of seven witnesses that the apostle John is gonna bring forward in his first 12 chapters of his book to convince people that they really should believe in Jesus. He really is the son of God who became man. He, he really is the one who can save you from your sins. And so in verses 6 to 8, we get, we get identified, we identify who John really is, and, uh, and now we have the summary of his teaching here. This is what he taught. It's a summary statement. The kinds of things John would go around teaching. John was leading a revival, uh, leading people to repent in light of the fact that the Messiah is coming soon. And then later on, the narrative here, starting in verse 19 Um, we get the narrative of John's ministry. But John the Baptizer was this witness to Jesus as he is the eternal word who is the son of God. Now the prophet John here is six months older than Jesus as cousin and began his ministry before Jesus started his. And so it would seem that as you sort of look, the person who starts first, well, they're more important. So it would seem that John the baptizer's ministry is much more valuable than the ministry of Jesus. But the prophet John here declares that Jesus was actually before him ministering because of his eternal existence, and that's exactly what it means here. we probably thought, is that what he means? That Jesus always existed? Yeah, that's exactly what he means. Jesus always existed in the bosom of the Father, as the scripture will go on to say, And he's always been ministering. This is a new development in the time. And so Jesus Christ is deserving of the preeminence and the honor. He is greater than the greatest of the prophets. And uh, John surrenders before him. It's also interesting to note here that in the original language, it's written to express the idea that John is still witnessing. Oh, he's dead and gone to glory. But the apostle John writes it as as if he's still talking and he's still witnessing. And that's because he wants you to see John's witness in his gospel account. And so our apostle makes it very clear who this person of Jesus is. He's he's fully true God. Verse one, full true divinity. And now, full true humanity in verse 14. It's on purpose. These are the bookends of the introduction. So we see at the very beginning, he always was, And now we see at the conclusion, he became man. We saw at the beginning that he was with God, and at the end of the introduction, that he's with us. At the beginning, that he was God, and now he adds to himself humanity, that he would add flesh. So the full accounting of this glory is in John's gospel, and as you read it, you'll observe it all, but I want us to take now a closer look at how he actually brings glory to us, how he brings grace and truth into our lives. But this is who Jesus is, and we've been learning that in the, in the introduction so much. But what did Jesus do? Well, we see his ministry of salvation fulfilled in verses 16 and 17, and then his ministry of divine revelation that takes place in verse 18. So first, this ministry of salvation fulfillment, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So verse 16 returns us to this main line of reasoning. We're done with the parenthetical statement about John the Baptizer. And we go back to verse 14. and can just pick up from where we left off. And so from Jesus Christ's fullness, that's his glory, glorious divine being, we've received grace and truth. We've received him himself. And he brings this full measure of grace into our lives now in the history of redemption. Now some take this phrase, grace upon grace, and there are various translations out there, grace upon grace as the idea that grace builds on itself. That it's constantly being renewed. And it's common to interpret this as God's grace without interruption in our lives, no limit to it. That's true, but there's more to it than that, than just that in this passage, because it should be obvious, especially as we get to the next verse, that we can also read it even more literally, and it makes even more sense contextually, that it's, it's grace for grace, or grace in place of grace. That's a more literal rendering. So you can see where this is going, right? What have we been talking about? You look down, glance down to verse 17, and will make it very clear in a moment that all of our blessings are in Jesus Christ, who's the fulfillment of the promises throughout the history of redemption for our salvation. In other words, Jesus brings a new grace. Jesus brings a full grace. Jesus brings the true grace. And so in verse 17, the, the apostles drawing in the Jewish audience and exciting them with more grace. There is not a radical disjunction. I know as we read it in English, we want to stick the word but in there, don't we? We read... For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But there's no adversative part in, in the Greek language there. Now, of course, it is an adversative, but it's very soft. And that's because we're supposed to see this disjunction as really a continuity of a story. The story continues. And in other words, the apostle saying to the people here, if you want more of Moses, the fullness of the covenant, that salvation grace, well, then here it is. It's in Jesus Christ. Glory has arrived. Grace has been fulfilled. Truth has been finalized. Jesus Christ has brought the grace of salvation to mankind. That's not a downgrade of Moses, but stating that Jesus far surpasses him in the fullness of time. And we'll learn this, In the Gospel account itself, if you were to study the Gospel of John and even Jacob and Abraham who were before Moses and then we get to this passage in John chapter 8.56 where Jesus said to the people, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad because it's the fulfillment. You see the law here is seen in this passage as a gift, as a gift that was given at Sinai to the people. And it existed largely here in anticipation of the time when the new Sinai and its gift of true grace would actually come through Jesus Christ. You see, the law under the old covenant wasn't designed to bring salvation. It couldn't bring it. It wasn't there for that purpose. It was there to point us to the one who would come. And so, in this contrast, it's a progression from good to better, a progression of fulfillment, and yes, even in some degrees, a rejection and a superseding of something that was inferior. For now in the history of redemption comes more glory, more grace, more truth, more generosity to all who believe in Jesus. And this is another major theme of the Gospel of John. There's a passage that might be helpful to many of you, and that's Second Corinthians chapter 3, the whole chapter. I won't read the whole chapter to you. But, but if you read all of Second Corinthians 3 on your own, you see this comparison. Between the glories of the two covenants, and which is more glorious? You see a comparison based upon how, in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the new covenant far surpasses the old. And you see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people, producing in them a holiness that could never have even been imagined under the old covenant. It is so much more glorious. That's 2 Corinthians 3. So, verses 10 and 11 simply say this. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, the ministry of Moses, which no longer does, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent, have glory. 2 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11. Well, then we go on to Jesus' ministry of divine revelation. So he brings hope, brings grace, brings truth, brings faithfulness and fulfillment in all of his work in his life, his teaching, of course, his death and resurrection for us. All of these things, this new covenant in his blood that is brought to us, that we've been studying, and then he closes out his introduction by simply saying, no one's ever seen God. But the only one who is God, that would argue is the best translation, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So This concludes the prologue. And it nicely returns us to the very thoughts of verse 1, where the Word, who we now know as Jesus Christ, our Lord, is God. At the very beginning in verse 1 who's at the Father's side. And now in verse 18 it's declared that He, Jesus, is making God known to the world. Because the world has never seen God. Nor would they know anything really, truly, deeply in comparison about Him. So no one has ever seen God, the scripture says, not even Moses saw God. I mean, all of Moses' views that he had of God, they were all partial, if you go back and look at them. And they were given to him in a way to cause us as the readers, is like, oh, wouldn't that be great to see God someday? And it's all an anticipation of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. And there are two basic reasons why no one can see God. One is because God is a spiritual being and we're embodied beings and we don't see spiritual beings. Second of all, God is terrifyingly holy and we're sinful beings who can't be in his presence without being consumed. But you see, Jesus Christ solves both these problems. He becomes human. He's the God-man forever, embodied. And he would die for our sins and so bring forgiveness and Give us his own righteousness, die in our place, cause us to be united to himself. He bridges this holiness gap. And so in John 12, 45, Jesus says, Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. That's who Jesus Christ is. He ministers to us the very vision of God, He's the only God. As we read in the translation, the ESV here, meaning, again, the unique one, the one of a kind one, in being God the Son. And the best translation is, the only one who is God. That's it. Who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is how verses 1, 14, and 18 all fit together, right? So 1 and 18, the beginning and the end, 14, sort of in the middle and it brings it all together. We know God now as a triune being because of Jesus who is the Son incarnate, the Word, God Himself. The second person of the Trinity, at the Father's side, he's in the closest relationship to Him. That's an idiomatic, I mean the idiomatic expression here that in the Father's bosom or in the Father's lap, that kind of a thing, means that he's in the closest possible relationship to the Father. So in other words, Who do you think knows God the best? I mean, that's the idea, right? So, he alone is uniquely qualified to teach the world, to teach us about him. He then also is, it makes a lot of sense then, when he says he's the only way to get to God the Father. Yeah, because people don't like it when you say that to them, that Jesus is the only way because they think you made it up, right? Or it's just your religion. But it makes a lot of sense when you realize who Jesus really is. Well, there can't possibly be any other way because he's the only one who knows. He's the only one who's going to give you access. So if we want confidence in really knowing God, then we have to know Jesus. He was always with the Father, and while on earth even, he was with the Father spiritually and with the Father in his divine nature. And we'll all see in the future that he has been there ever since his ascension and forevermore, And he has made him known. The last phrase, it's an unusual expression actually. And it means so much more than some of our translations take it and uh, that somehow he's just explaining something. Like, and and some will say that. Like, he has explained him or he has exegeted him or he has exposited him. You know, use all those great E words, you know. So, as if he's just came to explain something. But the verb here means something more like this. It means, he came to give a full account. He came to give an interpretation. He came to tell the whole story. Those are much better understandings of what's really being said here. No longer would the story of salvation be told in figures and in ceremonies, but Jesus Christ himself would forthrightly tell us the story of God's redemption. And in fact, that's exactly what we have in the Apostle John's account. He makes it very clear what this ministry of Jesus is. It's the fulfillment of the promise. The promise of grace, of truth, of life, of faithfulness, of redemption. And the ministry of Jesus is to reveal with clarity the truth of who God is and what God is really like and how to relate to him. So the incarnate word as we study today brings his glory and a surpassing grace and truth into our lives. That's what the apostle John wants us to understand as he opens his gospel. This is an introduction. He hasn't even actually started talking yet really to us as we read this. And when we get to the conclusion of this and the apostle John's introduction, I mean, most of us are like, I don't think I'm gonna be able to finish this book. I mean, this is so complicated, you know, and there's just so dense, this language. And, uh, but I would just encourage you, don't worry about it. It it gets easier. And um, so the density of the prologue, uh, there's the richness of the theology here. You don't have to worry if you don't have it all figured out here because as John goes along and tells the story, you're going to figure it out because he's going to make it really, really clear as he goes through the rest of his book. It's just an introduction anyway. The whole story will unfold. And the first half of the book is a story from chapters two through 12 about Jesus' public ministry. And it's his public ministry in seven signs. That's how you would entitle it. And so for those of you who are reading through the Gospel of John, because we're not actually studying the Gospel of John, this is an Advent series, but that's that's how you will find the next 11 chapters. Well today, the Apostle John just clearly summarized who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's the eternal word, he's the Son of God who became man. He came to reveal the fullness of God and to reveal the fullness of salvation. A couple of very important questions though even at this point arise as we're reading through the Gospel of John from this kind of a presentation. And first of all, when we read just our paragraph that we looked at today, a question that sort of goes out to the world, a question you might repeat is, uh, is something like this. Is like, what does what, what we read today suggest concerning, like, religious, experimental religious pursuits of God or truth or spiritual reality apart from Jesus Christ or without submission to him and his teachings and his scriptures? I mean, as you read verses 14 to 18 and you think about that, that somehow people want to pursue spirituality, pursue God, whatever they want to call it, truth, whatever, without Jesus Christ, what do you think they're going to end up finding out? I mean, there's no way anyone's going to get there to find out anything significant about God until you submit to Jesus. I mean, you just listen to the explanations of what most people find. It's like, okay, fine. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it has no clarity to it. It has no specificity to it. So it's like, you don't even need to do a religious pursuit to come up with some answers that people tell you that they found in their religious pursuits. And so there's there's no way anybody can find out anything because Jesus is unique. Remember how John used that word, he's the one of a kind. So he's not going to be disregarded in this process, but once a person submits to Jesus Christ, well then that person now knows God through him. And once that comes to be, well, then we can keep on learning amazing things about our God and details about him, things with great specificity, things that actually mean something in our lives and can mean things to other people. I think a second more reflective question that comes out of this kind of a passage and something we can ponder for ourselves is, again, how have you seen Jesus Christ's glory over this past year, how have you known him and the blessings of salvation and grace and teaching and work in your life? You know, becoming a Christian is not sort of a one-time event that you did as a child and that somehow you're never going to learn anything in again. I mean, it's all about growing in our knowledge, growing the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter says. I mean, do you, do you want more of Jesus? Do you need more of Jesus? I already told you how you can see and sense this. You have to go stare at him, and you have to use the scriptures, and that's how you're going to find out. There's so many blessings there. And so it's my hope, again, and our purpose in the Gospel of John this Advent season, that two things happen again, that we would apprehend more of the glory of Christ. So today, you got a little bit more insight on how you do that. How do you apprehend that? How do you get a hold of it? It's, it's by looking by reading, it's by meditating on scripture. And then you will delight, secondly, in your communion with Jesus Christ, your fellowship with Him, your relationship with Him, in other words, you're gonna delight in that through prayer. And that's how you do that. That's very practical. So let us let me pray for you pray for us. Lord Jesus, we adore you as the incarnate word. And those two words right there as they roll off our tongues seem so simple. But yet we know they're just both filled with mysteries so bright, so glorious, so eternal that our puny minds, even renewed in the Holy Spirit, will never fully comprehend all of who you are and all of the glory that you possess and that you brought to this earth in your coming. And in Your returning to heaven and then coming back yet again to renew and to bring in a new heaven and new earth. Your glory is amazing. And we praise you for your surpassing grace and truth that's come into our lives, that it's not just theological types of things that we're talking about, but we're talking about and praying for and experiencing true spiritual life and renewal in our souls. And so we give you praise, Lord Jesus, for that grace of salvation and your faithfulness and your truth that you bring into our lives and how you renew us. And there's so much more as we read in the scriptures about the details of how this is done, We praise you, God our Father, God our Son, and God the Holy Spirit, our triune and holy God from all eternity. And we pray these things for your ultimate glory. Amen.